0: to take various selections of different chapters of Psalms and to try to understand them and their relevancy to the Jew today. That's the intention of this class. Psalms is quite long. There are 150 chapters. Uh, In a seven, eight-week course, we don't uh, presume that we're going to cover 150 chapters. However... I will select various chapters that I think are central, have always historically been central in the book of Psalms, and we're going to study those somewhat textually, which means that you'll have the text in front of you, and from the text we'll become involved in understanding what King David was was talking about, praying about, praising about, pleading about, or beseeching about and how that all has a personal message for us. However, what I would like to do for this evening, those of you that have the Book of Psalms should bring it, otherwise there will be Xerox copies. We will be doing the first psalm next week, just to start from the start, and then we'll be skipping around. Um, What we're going to do for this evening is we're going to try to do an an introduction to the book of psalms trying to understand what the book of psalms is an overview of what's covered in the book who the author is how the author expressed himself in the book in a general way and to understand its particular place in in Jewish literature and its significant, uh, significance as such a special book of prayer now There's there's a lot to talk about in terms of an introduction to the book of Psalms. I guess the place to start, the place to start in in trying to unfold some of what this is all about is the fact that our Madrashic literature teaches us that the book of Psalms, which is 150 chapters, is really five books put together now how these five books are put together you know when in the in the Bible we know we have Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy it's very defined in the book of Psalms it's not so defined however just for information's sake chapter 1 through 41 is considered the first book 42 through 72 is the second book 73 through 89 is the third book the fourth book is 90 to 106 and 107 to 150 is the fifth book so the Sefer Tehillim the book of Tehillim is really a a compilation of five books and now you might think to yourself boy that's the first boring fact of the evening like what, what difference does that make But the reality is that there's a tremendous significance to it. Because what we are taught is that King David asked God that the book of Tehillim should find a place of relevancy in Jewish literature comparable to to the most sophisticated and intricate literature of the Torah. King David turned to God and asked God, let the Sefer of Tehillim be considered Kenegalim v'ahalos, like the most complicated chapters, the most intricate, the most involved chapters that deal with purity and impurity. Now, what is that supposed to mean? Was King David merely looking that historically he would be, so to speak, in some kind of hall of fame? God would have the first honor and King David would have the second, God being the author of the first first book, King David of the second. What is it supposed to mean? What it's supposed to mean is like this. In the ethics of our fathers, we're taught that though Judaism stresses that the Torah and the learning of Torah is an extremely important part of what it means to grow up and mature in a Jewish way nevertheless the ethics of our father says kol taira ein by yirashamayin Torah that does not have at the same time a recognition of God and a respect and a reverence for God and a behavior that reflects that recognition of God is not taira it's not worth anything in Yiddish we would say it's not worth two bull to two eggs. It's not worth anything. In other words, Tyra is a tremendous wisdom. Tyra is a, a tremendous way of life. But if the person that learns Tyra does not bring to Tyra from himself an attitude by which he seeks to see in Tyra the presence of God and therefore the reverence, the respect and a behavior that reflects that presence of God in his life, then the Torah is meaningless. Then it's intellectual gymnastics. Then it's not it's Torah not and it's not Judaism. It's neither. So Torah re- requires, in order to be authentic, and for the Jew that swims in it and thrives in it, to, to be able to do that, it requires at the same time what is referred to as Yiras Shemayim. It requires yirash Shemayim. <clears throat> and therefore, we have five books of Torah and we have five parallel books of yirash Shemayim. In other words, Torah is the wisdom of God expressed by its author in all of the different ways of life. However, parallel to those five books of Moses, that reflect the wisdom of God and that which we have to do and not do in life and so on and so forth. We have to have a book that cultivates and nurtures a person's sense of the reality of God, the presence of God in every situation of life, a respect and a reverence for that. And that's what King David intended when he composed the book of Psalms. More than anything else, what King David wanted to do with the book of Psalms was that the one that would read it and the one that would pray it would be able to generate beyond the, the intellectual wisdom of Tyre itself, he, man would be able to generate a presence of God standing before him. And therefore, all of the Tyre that the person would ingest and take into his being would mix together with the presence of God and the presence of God and what that brings out of me in terms of all of the feelings that I would have in, in the sense of feeling God in front of me, that together with the wisdom and knowledge of Torah would make a person into what King David was, a true chassid. David is referred to as the chassid. You can't be a chassid without wisdom. You can't be chassid without a way of life. But you also can't be a chassid if you have wisdom, but you don't have the formula by which to generate a presence of God. Now, so therefore, when King David turned to God and said to God, let the book of Psalms be as valuable as as the most intricate parts of the Torah, what King David was saying is the following. In the same way that the most intricate parts of Torah demand of the one that learns it total intellectual involvement in order to be able to comprehend and understand it God, I'm asking that you should gift me with the authorship that the person that would become involved in Tehillim should be able to come out of his involvement in Tehillim with the second critical component of Judaism the Yerash so in the same way that there are intricate parts of Torah that are intellectually totally inaccessible without a total involvement of the person within that knowledge. King David is saying, give me the gift that the safer of Tehillim should be one that the Jew that goes into it with all of the depth of his emotions will be able to find that second critical segment of Judaism, like the one that puts his mind into negayim and and finds out the intricacies of the laws of negayim and Now, <clears throat> it is very interesting, and these are tidbits of information, and you might consider them unimportant, but uh, but they all bring us to a certain point of understanding about what the Sefer of Tehillim is. King David composed the Sefer of Tehillim. The Sefer of Tehillim was written down in a definitive sense by King David. However, we know, and our Madrashic literature teaches us this, that there were parts of Tehillim There were parts of Tehillim that were really composed prior to King David. Take, for example, the psalm in Tehillim that we say, recite on Friday night, right after L'Chadodi, Mizmer Shirli Yom HaShabbos, the song that celebrates the Shabbos. Our literature teaches us that Mizmer Shirli Yom HaShabbos was first composed by King David, By excuse me, by first man, by Adam Arishan. So how does it find itself as a chapter in Psalms? Sounds like plagiarism, doesn't it? However, what our commentaries explain to us is that Adam HaRishan sang Mizmer Shirley Yayim HaShabbos. But then it was lost in history and King David composed the identical Mizmer Shirli Yayim HaShabbos that Adam HaRishan had composed when he saw the gift of Shabbos. There's a whole story behind Mizmer, Shiliyama, Shabbos, which I'm not going to get into right now. However, King David came upon the exact song of first man within his own spiritual relationship to God. Now, Adem isn't a single example of what I'm telling you now. The reality is that the Gemara tells us that there were ten Zekanim, there were ten different people who composed different parts of Tehillim, but that it was King David that brought them back and put them all and and established them as a part of the Sefer of Tehillim. Adam wrote Songs of Tehillim. Malkit wrote Songs of Tehillim. Avram wrote Avramavinu, Avinu, the first of our patriarchs Moshe, Haman, Yedaisen, Asaph the children of Kairach there were many people in history that wrote particular chapters of Tehillim nevertheless we find that King David is considered the author of all 150 so what it means is and this is what the commentaries explain that they composed it it was later forgotten And King David, without doing any research into archives, recomposed this in his spiritual relationship with God. Now, there's something very significant about this. Very significant about this. Because what does this teach us? What this teaches us is that really what the Sefer of Tehillim is, what is the book of Tehillim, it is not the personal expression of one particular individual. But it's the song of the soul. And the more that a person is in contact with soul, he can read off the chapters and verses of his soul that compose the Sefer hill Tehillim. It's the song of the soul. And therefore, if a person reaches the place of hearing the music of the neshama, so he can very conceivably compose identical songs to ones that were composed earlier by people that were in touch and influenced and inspired by their souls. So that's a very important thing to know and we're going to talk about that a little bit later on today, this evening. The fact that the Sefer Tehillim is is really, if one opens it up and one unravels it, it's really the deep music of Nishmas Yisrael, the Neshama of the Jewish people. It's a significant fact that we're going to get to. However, the point that I wanted to make, okay, and I got a little bit sidetracked for a moment, the point that I really wanted to make was that there were people in our history much earlier than King David that used the Sefer of Tehillim in order to survive even before it was written. We the same idea of what we're talking about now. The, the music of the Neshama. We are taught, we know in Chumash, that Yaakov, that Yaakov had in his life four major crises. He went into exile. Okay, He was running away from his brother Esau. He had a crisis with his daughter Dina. He had a crisis with Yosef. He had a crisis with his father-in-law, which you most probably think big deal. A lot of people have crises with their father-in-laws. But in his case, the crisis was a spiritual one, a deep spiritual one, because Levin wanted to destroy the development of a Jewish people with a spiritual mission. And we are taught in our Madrashic literature that the 20 years that Yaakov resided in the home of Levin and we are taught that Yaakov in all 20 years wasn't influenced in a negative way by his father-in-law Lavan was because he dedicated some time every day to see, say the safer to Tehillim is what we're taught. In addition to this, the Medrash teaches us that when Joseph was kicked out of the family by his brothers who suspected the worst of him and he was sold as a slave down to Egypt and there he could have he could have from a psychological and emotional point of view thrown off everything who needs my family who needs what they stand for if they make, if they treat me like a piece of dirt let me enjoy the environment that I've been thrown into etc. etc. but Yosef didn't Yosef stood up and he blazed the path for all subsequent generations, that the Jew would be able to transcend the depravity of Gullis and not lose the values and standards of what makes a Jew into a Jew. Yosef HaTzadik he's referred to, and again our Midrashic literature says that Yosef too. How did he survive? Because in his in the most difficult moments, he composed the chapters of Tehillim. So we see, from a historical point of view, that the notion of turning to the Sefer Tehillim as a place of comfort, as a place for inner security, as a place to express everything that goes on inside of a person to God was something that had very, very early roots. David HaMelech, in an interesting way, was able... To literally take in the entire spectrum of that music. The entire 150 chapters. Okay, so this is one, this is one point. Now, to become a little bit more particular, to become a little bit more particular about this, What is in the Sefer of Tehillim? What is in the Sefer of Tehillim? Well, there are two basic, there are two basic ways in which King David expresses himself, or better said, which circumstances led King David to composing the Psalms of Tehillim, the chapters of Tehillim. There were times of terrible crisis, terrible degradation, Pain, tragedy, and then there were moments of tremendous joy and tremendous happiness. Tehillim is a mixture of Psalms that King David composed that came from both places. From moments of severe anguish, King David composed Tehillim as he was leaving Eretz Yisrael and going outside of Eretz Yisrael because he was being hunted down like an animal by King Saul by Shaul HaMelech King David composed Tehillim he composed chapters of Tehillim in in deep tears over recognizing the mistake that he had made with Bathsheba King David composed Tehillim that spoke of how his own son turned against him and wanted to take away the kingdom from him and at the same time King David also spoke about moments of joy where he felt that God had vindicated him and God had forgiven him and that God had really considered him a loved one. So Tehillim is a combination of those songs that King David sang both out of tremendous anguish to God and out of a tremendous joy as well. And that's a very interesting point. Because in order for a person to have a real relationship with God, an authentic one, not one that's peaches and sour cream, love, flowers, music, and all of the rest of it, but a real relationship with God, one has to be able to open up their mouth in moments of pain. And one has to be able to open up your mouth in moments of joy, and be able to converse, and to be able to speak, and to be able to uncover that music of the soul that we spoke about before and to be able to talk to God in all circumstances of life now it's a very interesting thing I'll take questions soon let's just develop some of the ideas and then I'll gladly take questions it's a very interesting thing there's a dispute in the Gemara there's a dispute in the Talmud between Rabbi Lezer and Rabbi Yehuda. Who did King David say his psalms for? So most of us, if we're a little bit scholarly and have learned anything about psalms, we think that the book of psalms was basically a book that was an expression of David's relationship with God amidst all of the different circumstances of his life, the high points, the low points, but it's a diary of King David's dialogue with God, okay, with everything that happened in his life so this is Rebbe Leezer's opinion Rebbe Leezer he said everything that he said in the Sefer of Tehillim he was talking about himself and the things that happened in his life Rebbe Yehuda says that David really when he said the, the Sefer of Tehillim he wasn't talking from a personal place he was really talking from a place of understanding both the anguish and the joy of the Jewish people. Now, this is a very, very interesting thing because the Rambam teaches us, Maimonides teaches us that a king in Klal Yisrael has a very interesting, he has a very, very interesting power and a, a very interesting strength. A s- very interesting gift would be the best word. Lave melech, Leiv ha'am. God gives in the heart of the king that has to lead his people he gives him a heart to understand the heart of his people doesn't say a mind to understand the mind of his people it says lev melech, lev ha'am, that God in a particular way gives the king a gift of being able to have within his heart the sensitivity of understanding the, the heart which means the emotions of the Jewish people And therefore, according to this second opinion, what King David did was like this. King David looked into his own life, and because he experienced many things in his own life, he experienced the spectrum of life, tremendous pain, and also tremendous joy. King David understood that every single thing that happened in his life and that he was being exposed to happen for a reason that was, had to do with his position and his choices and so on and so forth. But way beyond being just a personal relationship with God, everything that took place had a significance because it would give him a way of comprehending the emotional depth of the heart of the Jewish people's relationship to God. So that while he needed a level of association within his own life to be able to feel the entire spectrum of the, uh, of the emotions of a Jewish heart. However, he understood that it wasn't supposed to become some kind of a self-centered endeavor of a spiritual relationship with God that locked out the people that he represented. But he understood that many of the things that happened had a value beyond What he needed on a personal level to grow, but that each and everything that he went through in his life and how he handled it and how he dealt with it and how he opened up to God and spoke to God would be, would also, he would become like a Shliach Tzibur, he would become like the Chazen that would be able to come before God and say, I have within me all of the emotions of the heart of the Jewish people, and therefore I am now singing to you, praying to you, pleading with you, beseeching you, etc., etc., not only for myself, but way beyond myself, I want to bring before you the Lev Ha'am, the heart of the people. Now, this is a very interesting thing, because what this means is, that on the one hand, King David had a tremendous personalization in every single word that he said. But what he did with all of that emotion that he had on a personal basis is that he earmarked the work that he did in his own personal life with all of its emotions. He earmarked the spiritual work that he did to open up his mouth and talk to God. He earmarked that koach, that power, that capability, that capacity, that every Jew should be able to do the same with his God. And where does the Jew find it? The easiest to do it with the Sefer Tehillim. That was the creation of the Sefer Tehillim. In other words, because King David took his, it didn't take his own personal life with all of the emotions and say okay I've got to settle my life with God I have to dialogue my life with God but he understood that with this he has a comprehension of his people and he will in everything that happened to him be able to bring another heart to God of the Jewish people so therefore what swims in the verses of Tehillim is the hearts of the Jewish people and every feeling that can be felt in the heart of a Jew and that's why when a Jew opens up the Sefer Tehillim there's a magic in the words that the person can find that there's something in his neshama that knows the music of those words of Tehillim it somehow gives a certain sense of security it gives a certain sense of peace it gives a certain sense of I'm, I, am, I am bringing myself authentically before HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Now, we'll take questions very soon. Let me just try to develop a little bit what King David was doing here. Now, there is one, there is one particular thing which is very important about Safer Tehillim. Very important about Safer Tehillim. And some of you have heard this from me once before. It's, it's something that uh, I'm fond of because I came to see the association of it. Okay? But tonight, I want to repeat it, but I want to expound upon it. I want to go into it a little bit deeper. We mentioned before that the Sefer of Tehillim is composed of 150 chapters. Now, I'm not usually into number games, okay? but there is a wisdom, and there are deep meanings in numbers, and the significance of numbers. We are taught that there are two Hebrew words whose numerical value adds up. If you take the letters of the words, they add up to 150. There are two Hebrew words that, if you add up the letters, they're 150. One of them is kas, anger. A kuf is 20, Ayin is 70, is 90, and Asamach is 60, is 150. So the Hebrew word for anger, which is kas, adds up to 150. However, there is another Hebrew word that also adds up to 150, and that is hachna'ah. Hachna, humility. A hey is 5, the chaf is 20, is 25, the nun is another 50, is 75, the iron is another 70 is 145 and then the final hay makes it 150 now seemingly there is absolutely no connection between the fact that these two very different kinds of characteristics both add up to 150 however there is a deep meaning to this plus the fact that the Sefer of Tehillim is 150 chapters King David in his life had a lot that he could have been angry about. King David in his life had a a lot that he could have literally been in tremendous resentment and rage about. And not only don't we see that King David expresses rage and anger, but if anything, the very same things that would have made any other human being that that travels the earth literally, so to speak spit out and that anger and rage those very things became the songs of Tehillim where King David took every single thing that another person would have handled in a way of resentment or denial or anger or frustration and King David took each and every one of those kinds of events and channeled it in a way that prompted him to speak from a deeper and yet a deeper and yet a deeper place from the neshama that was inside of him. Each thing became molded and changed in the heart of King David as yet another circumstance of life that moves me and pushes me closer to my Creator. I'll discuss my tragedy, I'll discuss my pain, I'll discuss my anguish, but in the embrace of believing deeply that God loves me, God cares for me, and that He is paying attention to my anguish, knows of my anguish, and cares about my anguish. But the question that comes up is, where did King David, where did King David have the capacity to be able to take that which should have been curses and make psalms out of it? Where did he have the capacity to do it? I might point out to you a very interesting thing. The Talmud tells us, listen carefully to this, because this really brings the point across very, very sharply. The Talmud tells us that in Babylonian times, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, he was an egomaniac. And he decided one day that he was going to make a monument of himself and have representatives of the United Nations, of all of the world, come and bow down to a monument of himself. And obviously there would be representatives from the Jewish people as well. So Hanani, Misho, Vazaria, who with three representatives from the Jewish people, we're selected we're selected to be the representatives and Vaziah didn't know what to do because Jews don't bow down to stone if it is an idol or if it isn't an idol but a Jew doesn't bow down to human a Jew only bows down to God however not coming was a dangerous thing it was a dangerous thing so they went to Hanavi, they went to Ezekiel and they asked Ezekiel what to do so what is the chicken's way out what do you do in the United Nations if you don't want to stand up for what you believe in you abstain so they asked Ezekiel do we have to go and not bow or can we abstain and Yecheskel Anavi said the Jews don't abstain Jews stand up for what they believe in go and don't bow down so Hananiah, Misho of went and didn't bow down and Nevuchadnezzar found out about it, and Nevuchadnezzar decreed that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah should be thrown into a burning furnace. Into not into a burning furnace, excuse me, into a into a, yes, into a burning furnace. Now, God didn't exactly want that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah should become barbecued. God wasn't interested in that, and God made a miracle that Hananiah Mishael Vazariah were able to walk out of the furnace untouched and unharmed by the flames, by those flames. And who saw Hananiah Mishael Vazariah walking out of the furnace? Nevuchanetzar. He was waiting to see a pile of ashes, and instead he saw Hananiah Mishael Vazariah walking out. And at that moment that Nebuchadnezzar saw Hananya Mishah of walking out, Nebuchadnezzar began composing psalms. He began composing psalms of the greatness of God. And the Gemara says that those psalms were could have been even greater than the psalms of King David. So what happened to those psalms? What happened to those psalms? So the Talmud tells us like this. The Talmud says that God sent down an angel to Nebuchadnezzar to give him a slap on the face. A slap on the face. A malach came down and gave him a slap on the face. And with it, Nebuchadnezzar stopped singing psalms and instead started cursing God. Now, one, could th- one would think to themselves, what's the interpretation of this? What is this supposed to mean? What is this supposed to mean? So what it's supposed to mean is like this. It's easy to sing psalms to God when you see wonders. It's easy to sing psalms to God when you see the fabulous and the miraculous. It's much harder to sing psalms to God when you get a patch on the face. Safer Tehillim is Safer Tehillim because it was sung in spite of a, a patch. That's the Kedusha of Safer Tehillim. Wanting God, yearning for God, speaking to God in the most difficult of circumstances. Why did God send an angel? Not because He wanted the Luchanetzah to stop. But what God wanted to do was he wanted to test Nebuchadnezzar if Nebuchadnezzar's composition of dialogue to God is one that has the precondition just as long as things are fantastic. So God sent an angel as a test. Nebuchadnezzar, you're composing. Fine. Lovely. Let's see if you can compose after you get a, a gazunta patch if you can, p- can compose after you get a patch, so then we will rewrite Tehillim and the author will be Nebuchadnezzar but Nebuchadnezzar stopped and his songs turned into curses and that's the distinguishing quality of Sefer Tehillim the distinguishing quality of Sefer Tehillim is that it's song that rises up from the midst of crisis and tragedy that's the Yichas that's the uniqueness of Sefer Tehillim but where did the gift come from why didn't King David be like Nebuchadnezzar and react with rage at the patch why not so the answer very simply is is because David Amelch possessed a characteristic which in Nebuchadnezzar was the opposite David HaMelech possessed Hachna humility humility before God and therefore the 150 psalms of kas, of anger were transposed into 150 psalms of tehilim so the 150 of anger and the 150 of humility are not are not coincidences the 150 which is the symbolism of humility was able to take that normal reaction of what would have been anger and rage and turned it into 150 chapters of Psalms now which all points to the fact that while we don't have answers intellectual or or emotional answers for many of the crises of our lives but a necessary ingredient to be able to go on a necessary ingredient not to ditch emuna, not to ditch our belief in God is not in theology but in a personal characteristic of having some humility before the greatness of God and saying that even though I don't understand I am prepared to say that I'm not big enough to understand and therefore I can still trust somebody that's greater than me. Now, what I just said now with some embellishments I've said before so that's nothing new. But I'd like to add on this evening to what I've just said is to understand yet another deep connection between King David and first man. We are taught that first man was supposed to live a thousand years. His lifespan was a thousand years. Well, we all know this, right? A thousand years. However, God showed King, da- God showed first man how later on in our history, how later on in our history there would be this person David that was destined only to live three hours after birth and Adam Arishan said to God take 70 years off my life and give them to King David so King David's life of 70 years if you want to be very simplistic about it was borrowed I mean, I don't know that, the other, that the King David ever paid it back, but in a way he did. We'll see in a moment. This is what our sages teach us. And some of you might have been familiar with this. I mean, it's one of those very well-known things about King David. Now, could you imagine, and I'm sure that if we know about it, King David also knew about it, that... He goes into the world, I mean, even from a psychological perspective, can you imagine how King David felt? Now, I was only supposed to live three hours, and somebody did me a favor and gave me 70 years of his life. So, like, I'm living off somebody else's time. How How could King David have felt about his life? But the reality is, the reality is, is that there is a very, very deep connection between... David HaMelech and Adam HaRishan between King David and First Man. And let's take out a few minutes to understand the connection. First Man was placed into a paradise. And in that paradise God told him that everything in the paradise is available to him. With the exception of one thing. One thing. And Adam Arishan was finally formed and created and brought into the world in the ninth hour of the day and you might believe that by the tenth hour of the day he, he did he ate only from the tree that he was told not to now there's something here that's very very difficult to understand I mean if you are set down in a paradise and you're told that everything is available to you with the exception of one thing yes human nature is that you want the one thing that you can't have But many logical and rational people will say like this, I've not given up on the thing that I can't have, but I might as well taste some of the things that I can't have, and when I get bored with them, then I'll go on and entertain the possibility of taking from the thing that I can't. But to assume that one short hour after first man is created and put into a paradise, that the only thing that is going to make Adam happy is the one thing that he can't eat, seems to be an incredulous fact. It's, it's just unbelievable add to it the fact that Adam other had such a, a phenomenal spiritual stature being the very creation of God himself makes it even more difficult to understand so this is a, a very very difficult thing to understand now some of our commentaries and this is based in the Ari HaKadosh a great Kabbalistic writer explain and they're not trying to whitewash first man And they're not trying to rationalize his actions. But what they explain is that first man wanted to eat from that particular tree because he knew that by eating from that particular tree he would have a level of association with negativity. Now, why did he want to have a level of association with negativity, with negative impulse and negative desire? Because he wanted to prove to God and to himself that even if he has negativity within himself, he has the power and the strength for the sake of heaven to overcome it. And then he will become a true creator of his spiritual gifts. Up until this point, everything that he had was a gift. But if I could prove myself, if I can make an internal intense conflict and prove my loyalty to God in spite of an internal intense conflict that I've placed myself into then I will become the possessor of my spiritual gifts because I fought for them under intense conflict and in the end, God will be prouder of me. He will be happier with me. So what is this? This is called a firma aveira, an orthodox sin. An orthodox sin where you know that it, on the surface it's wrong, but you rationalize it that in the end it will be a mitzvah and God will be happy about it. Now, I'm not going to get into tonight. It's a large discussion. How come Adam Elishan made this mistake of making this kind of calculation? Why did he make this kind of calculation? Okay, one way or the other, calculation from today till tomorrow, you're doing exactly opposite of what you're told to do. So with all well intentions, but you're going against the will of God. So this is a subject that's not for tonight, but it has a lot to do with the fact that that human beings feel threatened initially that if they follow God exactly, that that's going to be a denial of their sense of self. There's a fear that there's a total giving up. If I follow God and I don't do anything, that's my own idea, my own way of doing things, that I'm really stripping myself of a total sense of being. And that fear is a fear that even the greatest people have it's something that has to be overcome it's something that has to be dealt with but it is a fear that all have and therefore Adam Elishan went out on this limb of creating his own process of doing things because of this psychological need that he believed that he would lose his whole sense of being if he wouldn't do it and therefore he wasn't able to see the hole in the argument of making a calculation that was directly opposite of God fine so he was an intelligent person he was spiritually endowed in an unbelievable way but this particular factor the fear of losing the sense of self is so powerful, though secretive Ademarishan didn't know that he was going through it for that reason that Ademarishan wasn't able to see through so smart and if Arishan was so spiritually endowed and Adam, what could Adam Arishan have done in order to be able to see through it? In other words, we're painting a picture that he's spiritually endowed. He's, he's extremely intelligent. He's pure. He's unpolluted. He's the first product of God in this world. And nonetheless, he wasn't able to see through a, a psychological subjectivity and see that he didn't have a right to make a calculation that was opposite the will of God. Was there anything that... What was Adam supposed to do? Was he supposed to use his intellect? It was his intellect that got him into trouble. It was his intellect that told him that this is the better way of reaching the spiritual goal. And in the end, God is going to be happy with this because this will get me much further along spiritually. So intellectually, he figured he was doing the right thing. So intellect he couldn't use. Spiritual endowment still didn't lift him from the psychological need of a sense of being. So what could Adam Avrishan have done in order to be able to overcome this test? What could he have done? So Rav Chaim teaches us Rav Chaim Litzata teaches us that there comes a time in every person's life with his relationship with God sooner or later in the process of his relationship with God that man has to say I put myself and my calculations and my intellectualism and everything else and my spiritual inspiration and endowments and everything aside and I say to myself like this if my way was better then God would have given it to me why? because I trust that God has my ultimate good in mind and if, ultimately, my way was better, God would have given it to me. Now, what is that saying? That's saying I skip through the intellectualism and I skip through the spiritual endowment. It's all not relevant. The reality is, is, what's your bottom line? Your bottom line is, I know a better way than God. I know a better way than God means... That while God might have my well being in mind, there's nobody in the world that can have my well being in mind better than myself. That's what it means. Now, there are many, many different levels on which this is said by man. According to some interpretations, the inclination that came to first man to eat from the from the tree said to first man, You know why God doesn't want you to eat from this tree? Because he ate from this tree and he became a creator. And he's afraid of competition. If you'll eat from it, you'll become a creator. And he doesn't want competition. He's trying to control the market. He's trying to corner the market. Now, I'm not going to explain what cornering the market with God is supposed to mean. It's not for this evening. okay? But one way or the other, what does it talk about? It talks about suspicion. It talks about not trusting the test that first man had with all of his spiritual endowment and with all of his intellect and with everything that he had was that man has to trust. There comes a place that a relationship doesn't have reasoning and a relationship doesn't have all of these other things. It needs trust. If it was good, if it's the ultimate good, then God would have given it to me. Now, Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzata says like this and listen carefully Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzata says like this he says if Adam Arishan would have only trusted God and only till the end of the day till the day of Shabbos would have come he would have been permitted to eat from the tree of knowledge with the coming of Shabbos because what he would have accomplished in those three hours of trusting God Spiritually, would have meant that when he would then eat from the tree of knowledge, it would not affect him in a way that would take him away from God. Because the act of trust is the ultimate act of man saying, I worship nothing, not my spiritual endowments and not my intellect, nothing. I ultimately worship God. So our Kabbalistic literature teaches us that had other Rishan held to a trust of God for three hours he would have fulfilled his mission on earth and he would have been able to eat from the Eitz Hadas with the coming of Shabbos now Rav Moshe Chaim Lezata says and this is where things really flip us out Rav Moshe Chaim Lezata says and Adam Harishin didn't do it he didn't trust he failed the test of trust he said so what do we have to do now that Adam Mauritian failed in that test of trust we need thousands of years of Gullus thousands of years of Jewish exile that that which Adam Mauritian could have learnt with trust in God it sitting in a paradise we now have to learn the hard way through the journeys and annals of history in other words God is totally available to us in in Amunah, in trusting Him. But in lieu of not being able to trust God, so God says, the lesson you'll learn and you'll ultimately come to appreciating Me. And you could have learned it and you could have cleaved to Me through trust. But now that you don't want to, the best on action, you're a little bit stubborn, you're pig-headed, so fine. You will take a journey that will ultimately bring you back to the place of saying that which I should have trusted to the very beginning I now know through the hard experience of life this is what Rav Moshe Chaim says so now with that we understand very well how Other Elishan saw that David had this great soul this soul that was able to sing in crisis but that it would only live for three hours and Adam said that which I didn't do in my life I want to give a segment of my life to David HaMelech that David HaMelech should correct and should fix the trust that I didn't have so David HaMelech didn't grow up with the knowledge that I was only supposed to live for three hours I'm an accident and I am... Here only by the mercies of first man Adam-A-Rishan knew, first, king David knew that if he had 70 years of Adam's life it meant that he had to complete something that was the, un, the unfinished business of Adam what's the unfinished business of Adam the ability to be able to see God and to, to speak to God in the midst of tragedy and crisis Not like Nebuchadnezzar that the minute that he got a patch on his face he stopped singing and began cursing. Now if we want to take this a little bit deeper if we want to take this a little bit deeper we can now put together the beginning of the class with the end of the class. That's a hint that there's questions coming up. We can put the the beginning of the class together with the end. We can bring it together. What's the music? What's the music of the Jewish soul that I was talking about before? The music that a person plays when things are going right is the music of things going right. It's not the music of the soul. The music of the soul that comes from the deepest depths of the soul is that a person goes beyond all pain and beyond everything and says no matter what I don't have there's one thing that I do have and that's God that's the music of a Jewish soul to sing because of what we have that's the song of the haves that's the song of the things that we have If we have a nice house and we thank God for having a nice house, it's the song of the house. If we have a yacht, it's the song of the yacht. If we have a nice salary, it's the song of salary. It's not the song of the soul. The song of the soul is the song of a Jew that says, if I have nothing in my life but I have God, I'm happy. And if I have nothing else in my life except God, at least I have the most important individual that I, any person can ever have to talk to, and to share my life with. That's the the beginning and the end of the class put together, the music of the neshama, the music of the soul, okay, the music of the soul, and the emuna. One could say that the music of the soul is the undying emuna, that if I have nothing, I have God. Now, the interesting thing about King David, as I mentioned before, is that we all know, we all know that the power of music, the power of song is a phenomenal power. It's a phenomenal power. Because music has the way of taking a person from where they are to where they yearn to be. That's the power of music. And that's why music had a very, very central place in Judaism. The temple was defunct without music, without musical instruments and without musical song. Defunct. We are taught that when a person brought a sin offering to the temple... The Levian, the Levites that were appointed to be there that day, had a job of singing again and again and again, so that the person that brought the sing offering would bring it not from the place that he was, but the place that he yearned to be, and this would be something that would move him in the direction of re establishing his relationship with God. That's the power of music. That's its power, and therefore, and therefore, since that's what's the power of music, so now let's put it together with Tehillim. What did we say about Tehillim? King David sang the music of the soul, and the music of the soul is the Amuna that if I have nothing else, but I still have God. And everything that happens to me is yet another way that, another thing that I'm going to share and communicate and talk to God about. That was all put into the into the song. That was all put into the Psalms. So any Jew that believes in the Psalms, studies the Psalms, and says them with an earnestness, the power of those Psalms is that it takes the Jew from the place of rage and anger and resentment and it takes him to the place where his soul really yearns to be to cry it all out before God and say to God that my deepest concern is do you love me? if I can know that everything that you're doing to me is not out of hatred and rejection but out of love then I there's no problems here there's no problems here. There's, I mean, the, the, uh, would I want things different? Yes. Would I select things different? Yes. But there is really, on the deepest level, no problem, if I can know that. And therefore, what King David poured into the Psalms was this emuna. And even if a person is very distant from emuna and very far away from emuna because the power of song by its very nature is that it takes the Jew from where he is to where he yearns to be deep down so the person that recites psalms can become uplifted to a place of emunah to a place of belief that on intellectual bases he's still not there yet that's the power of the Tehillim now I'm going to do one last thing here that's going to take just a couple of moments it's it's just a factual thing that we need to know the shalak okay I'll leave that for the very end just a factual thing which if this is the definition uh, in an introduction of what the book of Tehillim is about what kind of subjects do you think are discussed in the book of Tehillim I mean, other than the expressions of what's going on in King David's life and how King David is sharing all of this and his feelings of everything that's happening with God. What do you think the book of Tehillim is about? The book of Tehillim is King David's yearning to proclaim the existence of God, to proclaim the fact that God knows what's going on in a person's life, that God is involved in a person's life, that there is a system that's a justified system to what happens to man in the short and long term. These are some of the themes. And why are these themes? I mean, is this a book of theology or is this a yearning for God? But the answer is that it's one and the same in the book of Tehillim. Because a yearning for God means coming to understand God, becoming knowledgeable of God and what God is relevant to his relationship with man. And therefore, what King David does, what he explores, what he yearns for, what he asks God to see, is help me see you. Help me not allow these crises and these circumstances to blind my vision of what you truly are. Because ultimately... I can lose everything, but I don't want to lose my vision of you. And therefore, Tehillim speaks a lot about the essence of God, the oneness of God, the fact that God knows, the fact that God is involved, and so on and so forth. It also speaks very much about the ways of coming back to God. Tshuva, the Darkeha ha The yearning for the relationship with God it speaks about a deep, deep desire that God should become revealed to the world. What Something that one loves, one wants that all should be able to appreciate. And we finally come to the end by saying this, that the Shaloh HaKadosh, that the great Kabbalist, the Shaloh HaKadosh says, Mi nafsheli dabik ba if a person desires to have God and to cleave to God, yat bik He should cleave to his book of Psalms. All right, I'll stop here and I'll gladly take questions on the material that I, I brought up this evening. Yeah. The relationship between David and Hashem. Moshe talked to uh, Hashem. The Shekina was there. Uh, he didn't let him see him Was David left alone, or was God, the Shekhinah there talking to him, that it seems like he wasn't there, Hashem wasn't there, because David could do this on his own, he David to do this on his own. But to reach out to God, Hashem. But I thought, you know, Stalin led up to prove that he should be the king, all the other brothers, whatever. Hashem didn't really uh, talk to him. It seems like... um, think going and the rain and the so okay. Okay. So so let's answer that question there. There are a lot of premises in your question that we have to go through. First of all, making a comparison between Moshe and David. Okay, just making a comparison between Moshe and David. One of the very fascinating things about Judaism, okay, is that Judaism is a tremendous supporter of variety of different colors. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that Judaism doesn't say that there is one single human power by which man develops his relationship with God. There are many, many different gifts and powers and capacities that man have that each can forge a relationship between man and God. Moshe Rabenu is a symbolism of Chachma, a deep intellectual connection, a bond with God that went through deep, deep intellectual understanding of God. Does it remain just intellectual? No, obviously not. But the foundation, the basis, the connection is Moshe Rabbeinu is the Chacham. All right. David Amelech is not the Chacham in his relationship with God. David Amelech forged a relationship with God with his Lave, with his heart. The human being has a Lave and he has a Moach. He has a heart and he has a mind. Obviously, we need both. Without either one of them, man is dead. All right. However, in Avodas Hashem you can have a person whose primary connection to God is Moach mind and the heart follows you can have another person whose primary connection is Lev and the mind follows Moshe is the symbolism of Moach of mind David HaMelech is the symbolism of Lev and in many ways in many ways the person that is the people person the people person for the day-to-day things that go on in our lives to be able to relate to God is the Lev, is the heart, is the David HaMelech. The mayach depends upon how intellectual you are, It depends how what your intellectual capacities are and so on and so forth. And that's why it's not even fear to make a comparison. They are tracks by which they reach the same place. God were different tracks. One of Malach, one of Lev. Now, going on to something else that you suggested in your remarks Uh, God revealed himself to Moses we don't see that he revealed himself to David okay right and the seeming disadvantage and lack of relationship that God seemed to have with King David okay I think that everything that I was trying to say tonight was the exact opposite of that right what I was trying to say this evening is that that sometimes we can see God because he is brilliantly portrayed before us. Sometimes there is a much, much deeper effort to see him. There is a lot of darkness. There is a lot of confusion. However, the efforts that man puts forth to be able to see in the darkness and in the confusion leads to a very, very deep relationship being, in other words, going through the processes of being able to find, in darkness and in confusion, finding the God that really is always there, okay, can, can lead to a perception of God that doesn't come with the brilliance, so to speak, of the Moses that you were referring to, but nonetheless is the total magnificence of God. Let me explain it, okay? Let me explain it. Let let me explain it. Let me explain it. I have to explain it a little bit. Give me another minute to explain it. And I'll explain it with a Gemara. Those of you that want to leave, can leave. I'm not insulted, but don't come back next week. Um, No, I'm fooling around. Um, Let me explain it with a Gemara. When the Jewish people went into Golis, when the Jewish people went into Babylonian exile, okay, there were two prophets there were two prophets I believe it was two prophets that took out that took out two words from our Amida prayer two words from our Amidah prayer we talk about God being HaKel Hagodil, the big one the Gibar the powerful one the Naira the awesome one so excuse me HaKel ha- Hagodil, HaGibar HaNaira now Hagibani, the powerful one and the awesome one. So these two prophets came along and they took out if I'm not mistaken, it was Isaiah and Jeremiah. Each one took out one word. One took out Gibar, and one took out Naira. Why? One prophet took out the word Gibar because he said that we were vanquished and exiled. Ayegvaraisov, where is the power of God? Where is the power of God? And if I can't see the power of God, it would be false for me to praise God and say that He has power. So therefore, the word Geber was taken out. So then the next prophet takes out the word Naira, the awesomeness of God. He says all of the rest of the world that that is doing terrible things is on top of the world and everything is going their way. And we who are following the path of God, we're the most downtrodden people where's the awesomeness of a relationship with God took out the word Naira. at the end of 70 years of Babylonian exile even before we came out of exile and before the temple was rebuilt the high court the great assembly of the Jewish people put the, the words back why? why did they put the words Geber and Naira back into the Amida so the Anche Knesset I could daily explain like this he said, For a God that loves us so much to have put us through so much in this exile is a true demonstration of power and discipline. And for and having to live for 70 years amongst these lions and to survive it, isn't that the awesomeness of God? And therefore... Even before anything changed, they put the words Giber and Nair back. Why am I bringing this as an example? I'm bringing this as an example because we don't like the things that happen to us that are difficult and painful. However, the difficult and painful things that God gives us is only a testimony on the deepest level of a true love for us. For if God wouldn't truly love us, he wouldn't have the strength of discipline to put us through things that are so painful. because they would. So the, the, there's a testimony, in other words, in the very fact, in other words, in the very fact that God goes through things, that the world screams, and God says, even so, I have to do it. Okay, It's very similar. I don't want to be corny, but it's like the parent that says, I gave you the pouch because I love you. It doesn't mean that it was easy to give. It requires a tremendous amount of strength. But it's the person that authentically loves that can have the strength to do such a thing. And that's what I'm talking about over here. The perception of the Jew to be able to see beyond the thing itself and to be able to see, okay, to be able to see the strength of conviction of how God leads us through thick and thin, okay, because of that that deep love. I do have to stop here because, because...